Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Eric Lomazoff, who is the author of the new book, Reconstructing the National Bank Controversy, Politics and Law in the Early American Republic. This is published by the University of Chicago Press, and it is a fascinating page turner of a book on understanding exactly what the debate was constitutionally politically, um, and in terms of changing institutions at the time of the initial national bank, and then the controversies that seem to follow it through the first 30 or 40 years of the new republic. But I'm going to let Eric tell us a little bit more about that as we discuss his excellent new book. Let me first introduce Eric Lomazoff and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project. Hi, Eric. Hi, Lily. Thanks for having me. Sure. So, um, yeah, I'm a, a political scientist. Uh, I'm a faculty member at Villanova University. Um, I'm, I'm actually a, a native Philadelphian. So um, when I was able to to come to Villanova uh, a couple years after graduate school, I was I basically said, "This is where I want to be," and you know, I'm going to stay here as long as I can. And so um, I'm really happy about that. This this book grew out of my uh, out of the dissertation that I wrote um, in graduate school. Um, it was a you know it was a little bit of a strange road just to get to the project. What had happened was I I took my general exams. Um, I was at uh, at Harvard for for graduate school. I took my general exams at the end of my second year and. I took my exams actually as a political theorist, and but but I I think I knew deep down that I wanted to sort of venture more into American politics or at least into sort of American political development as a kind of bridge um, uh, between various things that held my interest. But I will admit I had absolutely no clue what I wanted to write about. There was no big general question, which was just sort of blinking, you know, in front of me in terms of what I wanted to study. And so I remember I was serving as a teaching assistant in just an intro to American politics course. And I was sitting and thinking, you know, what do I do? And so at some point I just sat down and I I said, okay, I'm just going to try to read broadly in uh, in American politics. And so one of the books that I picked up was uh, Ron Chernow's uh, biography of Alexander Hamilton, the the very same one that, that Lin-Manuel uh, Miranda read and then, you know, turned into a multi-million dollar musical. Um, I didn't quite wind up making as much money as he did, but... Oh, uh, well. Oh, well. Uh, so I was reading the the book and, you know, it's a great biography. and. Um, Upon finishing the book, I thought, you know, I, I remember learning like lots of people about the national bank controversy, um, but I wanted to go and take a second look. And so I, just because I was curious, just in, I guess also in part, I wanted to refresh my 
um, my recollection. And so I picked up this book. I'm looking at it on my shelf um, right now. It's It came out in 1957 um, from Princeton University Press by a guy named Bray Hammond, and it's called um, Banks and Politics uh, in America. And it's sort of a study of, of antebellum banking. Uh, it actually won the Pulitzer Prize in history for, for 1957. And uh, I was reading it. And the thing that I noticed, the thing which sort of jumped out at me after 200 or so pages, is that there were actually real inconsistencies between the bank story that every student of, you know, intro to American government or sort of a first semester constitutional law course would learn about the bank and the bank story that Bray Hammond was telling. And that inconsistency for me was something that I needed I felt like I needed to understand. I didn't know if there was a possibility of building a whole dissertation there, but I just thought this thing doesn't, there, there's this disjoint here and I want to address it. And so everything is sort of born from that disjunction. Um, it, it wasn't, it really wasn't like I, um, like I sat down one day and said, I want to write a book about how, the line between politics and law in the early republic is porous and and let me let me do that it was literally there's this thing that doesn't make sense and i want to um uh, i want to figure out what's going on here and 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 that's also how you i mean it's really interesting to hear you sort of talk about how you kind of came to this topic but it's also how you introduce the book itself that you sort of go through and give the reader a pricey of like this is how most people understand the bank controversy in the early Republic. And as I said, I started reading it and I was just like, Hmm, I wonder if I'm teaching the McCullough decision incorrectly (laughs) in my introduction to American politics class, all these low many years. I Um, I am sure that you are teaching it perfectly fine. Um, I appreciate that. Um, But you, you do sort of set out that like, this is how we often think about it. Two, hundred years later, that it was a really sort of condensed situation. There was one constitutional argument um, that essentially won the day. um, And that was the end of that. But that wasn't really the end of that. Yeah. So uh, two things here. One, I would would note um, just on the basic idea of, of opening some of these chapters with what I call the, um, the conventional wisdom. Um, I, I actually got a fair bit of, um, of blowback from people, you know, who were reviewing the manuscript who, who didn't like this sort of thing. And, and, you know, I don't feel strongly about it. It's just, I, I thought actually for the benefit of people who were not specialists in this area, just to sort of do, I think what you're describing a, a kind of fact check and say, Hey, um, what are the things that we think we know? And then, yeah, set it up as a kind of straw man, but not not in some sense where I, I'm just thinking, you know, oh, I want to I want to show why everybody has been wrong um, and why I am so right. It's more like, hey, maybe the first thing we need to do here is get everybody on the same page and then we can talk about what modifications, you know, might be made here. Um so, so that was the basic idea behind it, um, to, to basically make it possible for anybody 
irrespective of their level of knowledge to sort of engage with the bank story. Um, and in terms of the the substance, yeah, the the bank story, as I learned about it, I think probably in high school, um, but certainly in college and then in graduate school, we tend to learn about it as a story in which you have this recurring question, can Congress charter a national bank? It shows up in 1791 in the first Congress. It shows up in 1819 in McCulloch v. Maryland. It shows up in 1832 when Andrew Jackson has a bill to extend the charter of the second bank um, on his desk. And my understanding of the episode, at least from those early passes at it, is that in all three of those episodes, you have this two-sided conflict between a broad or a loose and a strict or narrow uh, interpretation of the necessary and proper clause. And as I started to dig into the story here, um, what I realized was that's, that is certainly part of the story in terms of the, the bank's history, but it, it is by no means the whole story. And that's what I find really fascinating about your book in terms of you you talk about the fact that, you know, mostly the bank story is situated in a constitutionalism context, as you say, you know, that there's the construction of the loose interpretation of the Constitution or a strict interpretation of the Constitution and the powers of Congress. Um, and that it happened and, you know, it went to the Supreme Court in the McCulloch case and was decided. Um, but what you bring to the book that I found really fascinating and enlightening is a lot of the sort of developmental political dynamics that are going on all around the bank and how the question shifts and changes um, in terms of the constitutional discussion. Can you talk a little bit about what was going on in 1791 versus 1819 versus 1832 politically? And you also focus in on 1811 um, when it died. <laughs> right. Um, and, and, so, and that there were, you know, these shifts in the landscape that are really important to think about that most of the time we don't pay attention to as, as I say, you know, the one day I talk about McCullough in my intro American government class. Okay. Um, sure. So it, it, there are two things that spring, um, spring immediately to mind here. One is, so I'm, I'm thinking back to that sort of standard account of the bank that I was just talking about a couple of minutes ago. Um, when I learned about, you know, the 1791 episode and then McCulloch and then the, the bank veto, we never talked for a moment about what the banking industry looked like in the United States and certainly not um, how it might have differed in 1790, well, in 1819 as opposed to 1791 or in 1832 as opposed to 1791. It just sort of assumes that, yeah, the banking landscape is this thing, but it's not really relevant for the story. And, and one of the things that um, that became apparent to me early was this, this assumption that it's that the banking industry is this thing which is outside the controversy is is completely false, that the banking industry changed and that had the, the early American banking industry changed in the first 
Well, especially the first 20 years that we lived under the Constitution. And that had real consequences for the debate over a bank's, uh, over the constitutionality uh, of a national bank. One thing that happened that I talk about in one of the chapters is um, when the first bank was chartered in 1791, you had a handful, a literal handful, but only that of of sort of smaller state chartered banks in the United States, basically mainly in uh, large eastern seaboard cities. Um, by the time you get to 1811, uh, when the bank's 20-year charter is up and it needs to go to Congress sort of hat in hand asking for a new one, you have over 100 banks. And uh, one of the things that I talk about in chapter four of the book is how when you have 100 banks on the ground in 1811, the question of whether a national bank is quote-unquote necessary um, is actually very different than it is if you're talking about whether a national bank is quote-unquote necessary and you only have five banks. Um, the other thing that's different in terms of the banking landscape or how it changes over time is um, the, the Bank of the United States starts off and Hamilton speaks to this, I think, in his in his report on a national bank really clearly. It starts off as a as an institution that I think economists would characterize as fiscal in nature. It's it's there to perform any number of services pertaining to the federal government's finances. But when Hamilton designs it, he does not have anything in mind like what we would think of today when we think of the principal functions of, let's say, the Federal Reserve. It does not regulate other banking institutions. It does not uh, regulate the overall money supply. And it became apparent that the first bank of the United States gradually um, took on those functions, became not just a fiscal, but also a monetary um, uh, institution during the time of its first charter. And that too, once you get to 1811 and uh, and then uh, 1816, that, that development as well really affects what's going on in terms of the constitutional politics. Um, one last development here, and this will get back to what, what you mentioned uh, in terms of how things are changing. The other big thing that changes over time in terms of the bank's constitutional politics is in terms of which party is basically dominant in national politics. And it's it's not simply a matter of, well, Federalists were in the majority in 1791. They were friendly towards national power, so we get the bank. It was, well, and and then sort of Jefferson's Republican Party comes along and they are less friendly to, to national power and so the bank runs into, into greater difficulties. What happens is Jefferson's party uh, comes to power starting in, I guess, uh, March of, uh, of 1801. And once they come to power, this, this big sort of, this big tent party actually begins to divide on questions of national power, which is to say, there are some members of the party who want to who want to destroy everything that the Federalists did when they were in power. I'm thinking of actually of the of the current incumbent wanting to you know undo everything that his predecessor did. There are, there are certainly Republicans 
um, who want to take down the Bank of the United States uh, after they come to power in, in 1801. On the other hand, there are also a group of more moderate Republicans who, at the very worst, are on the fence about a national bank. But there are also some who see the benefits of a national bank. And so they are less, um, they don't really have any scruples about renewing the bank's charter in 18, uh, in, uh, in 1811. And so part of the story that I tell is about watching the sort of dominant Republican party of the, of the first couple decades of the 19th century, really fight amongst themselves about what to do with this institution um, that some of them are okay with, some of them are truly undecided about, and some of them are quite opposed to. And so the the sort of fissures or or tensions within party politics starts to come into the bank question in a way that is not usually, again, discussed around it because it's usually the Federalists or the Hamiltonians on one side and the Jeffersonians on the other side. And so your reconstruction of the argument is also suggesting that we need to pay more attention to the internal politics of the dominant party, particularly as the bank was sort of coming and going in the early days of the Republic. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And and in fact, uh, I know we were talking a little bit about this um, before we hit the record button. One, one of the things that I noticed in my research in the event that um, that there are graduate students listening, sort of sort of early term graduate students, is that most of the work that's done on the history of well, the history and development of political parties in the United States tends to really pick up in 1832 um, with the birth of sort of mass political parties um, uh, with the Democratic Party. But what I found is there's actually very little in terms of a good narrative about the sort of origins and development and ultimately the death of that of that early Republican, you know, Democratic Republican Party of Jefferson, Madison, Monroe. Um, really, the best you have are are the sort of history. Um, there were a couple of histories that were written um, by uh, by Henry Adams, um, if I'm remembering correctly, about uh, about the administrations of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and James Madison, but if if you wanted if you went into the literature on American party development, searching for an account of the development of the sort of Jeffersonian coalition between let's say 1801 uh, uh, and 1829, you're not really going to find one. And I think that is sort of um, that is right there for some student, some graduate student uh, in American politics who wants to tackle early. Uh, early party development uh, in the U.S. And I, I do have to say, though, I think my my colleague and friend here in, in Milwaukee, Julia Azari, is working on some of that um, on, on her current 
in her current book, but that's a, a side discussion that you can okay. have another time. Um, but I'm sure that there, there's a lot there to mine also. Yep. Um, I, I think in, in terms of sort of having the broad brushstrokes of that, that period of time, but not necessarily deep dives into what's going on inside of that party during that era of good feeling, as it were, um, or that's capped by the era of good feeling. Um, but I wanted to ask you a bit about um, sort of how you also integrate the the War of 1812 mm-hmm. <laughs> um, into the bank discussion, um, in part because it played a role in, in, in to some degree, the discussion over the recharter um, and, and why that particular incident in our history has bearing on this this um, understanding of the bank in our our early republic sure um, yeah the war of 1812 definitely um, plays a big role here so I, I mean one easy point to make here is is to say that if one of the purposes of a national bank was to sort of um, lend the government money uh, in times of emergency, um, when the national bank, when the first national bank goes out of business um, in in 1811, and then we go to war with with Great Britain, what 15 months later, it, like the nat- the first national bank went out of existence at virtually the worst possible time, like uh, you know exactly the moment when it was needed. Um, and so during the War of 1812 itself, the federal government had difficulty um, funding uh, funding its operations. Uh, it would borrow money from state banks. It would try to sell bonds to, to private investors. But it generally had a difficult time. Um, lots of people, when they when they talk about the birth of the second bank, like to focus on this idea that, oh, well, the federal government had trouble funding the war. And so it was an easy call to make once the war is over that they're going to create a new bank. What I found is that it actually, that's not actually what happened. What happened is um, in the middle of the war, basically fall of, of 1814, uh, right around the time that you have this, this British assault on, um, on Washington, DC and the, um, and the, the broader Chesapeake region, um, you have a lot of banks around the country, these state chartered banks that stop paying gold and silver on demand for their notes. And uh, I know we're going to probably talk a little bit uh, in uh, in more detail about this, but the effect of this is to really produce disorder in both in terms of the, of the of the banking system uh, of the country, but more importantly in terms of the money supply of the country, and so one of the questions that emerges after the war is how do we deal with the problems of having an unregulated banking system? Uh, and it is that problem that lawmakers in the post-war period were were trying to address when they thought of reviving uh, the Bank of the United States. And in terms of the sort of decision to stop paying out in gold and silver, the banks instead use something called specie notes. 
Um, I think I'm saying that correctly. Uh, and, and can you talk a little bit about what those were and why that was particularly at that point a problem? It also becomes a problem later in the Republic as well, but in this particular instance. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think the only, uh, the only amendment I would offer would be to sort of distinguish between specie and, um, and notes that, which is to say that, when we use the word specie, and and it's still around, you'll you'll still see references to it. What we're really talking about is um, hard currency. We're talking about gold coins, silver coins, um, other coins that are made from from precious or even semi precious metals. Um, that was the sort of base currency. That that was the currency that everybody understood to be the actual. Um, thing of value. Paper note or um, paper money, bank notes were circulated. And if you look at notes from this period, it would often say pay to the bearer of this note, a certain amount in specie. They're thought to be representative of the real thing, um, but they're not actually thought to be the real thing itself. And so it was understood. And we have a modified version of this today that banks could safely circulate some multiple of the amount of money they held in hard currency. They could circulate some multiple of it in paper currency. Now, the risk was always that there would be a run on the bank and they wouldn't be able to to pay everything out. But that crucial link there between the paper money that's circulating and the hard money that's being held as as reserves by the bank, that link gets broken during the War of 1812. And without going into all of the technical details, um, the main result for Americans, sort of everyday Americans, is um, is a pretty rapid increase. Well, not, not necessarily a, um, an increase in the money supply immediately, although that comes later. It's really just that the paper money that they're holding, people aren't as confident as they used to be that it actually has the value that it says it has. And so Americans begin to experience price inflation. Um, they're, they're paying some additional amount for goods and services above what they were um, before the British uh, raided the Chesapeake Bay. And that's the problem that lawmakers after the war are trying to deal with because just because the war ends doesn't mean that banks are going to go back to sort of doing business as they were uh, before the war. And, and so you, you sort of, you set this up. It's almost like a little bit of a mystery or spy novel, the way that you sort of structure the, the discussion in the book, but you sort of say, okay, well, this, this part of the story we don't usually hear about, but this is really important to understand, like the question of currency um, and the way the banks were operating. But one of the other points that you sort of brought up a little bit was the fact that in 1791, there were, as you note, about five banks that existed in the United States. Um, but that as the time passed, there were more banks. And so there was also this question with regard to the role of the national bank um, in terms of regulating, as you say, sort of the banking system, um, but also the question of competition. Can you talk a little bit about how that's part of the story that is also often glossed over? 
Sure. So this is going to back us up um, probably to the 1811 um, episode. So I, I was I was trying to get at it earlier when I was talking about how the, um, you know, if you have a hundred banks across the um, sort of uh, up and down the the eastern half of of North America in in 1811, it sort of changes this question of whether a national bank is is truly necessary. The the reason why competition mattered so much is because one of the biggest customers for the national bank, whether we're talking about the first bank or the second bank, was actually the national government. Um, so the the Treasury Department would keep all of its money uh, in the national bank, either in the main headquarters in Philadelphia or in its branches uh, throughout the country. And state banks understood full well, especially in 1811, they understood full well that if they could get their hands on some fraction of that money, then they could profit off of it. Um, and so you have this this real, um, I guess the technical term, the, the term political scientists throw around here would be rent-seeking behavior, that, that you definitely have state banks that are looking to to win by having the national bank lose, which is to say if the national bank goes under uh, in in 1811, the federal government's money is going to have to go somewhere. And so their hope, and this is the hope of state banks across the country, their hope is that they can get a little bit of the spoils of victory. And so you do see it's it's not universal among state banks in 1811, but it is I would say a clear majority of them want to see the national bank die. And if so, if you're looking at um, sort of who are the key interest groups or who are, who are the key pressure points uh, players in 1811, state banks are right there basically pressuring members of Congress to vote against the bank uh, so that they can profit. And, and so Interestingly, that brings us possibly to the bank in Maryland um, and, and the constitutional question that landed on John Marshall's desk in 1819, I believe. Um, and so you, you sort of put all of these different components to our understanding of the sort of national bank controversy um, together, but you're also sort of looking at the different ways that the argument for the necessity, as you say, of the necessity of the bank perhaps was less um, later than it was earlier. And so the constitutional argument that brings in the necessary and proper clause maybe made some sense earlier on in Hamilton's argument, but less so later on. Um, can you talk a little bit about that sort of constitutional shift and change that goes on during the course of the sort of bank controversy. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So this is um, this is actually the the part of the story that I sort of um, I dance very lightly um, with when I'm in the classroom because I I want to bring it up with my students, but I want them to understand just how subtle. Uh, the question is, so, so yeah, let's let's go back to that thing that that we've talked about and and um, and you just mentioned. 
So you have five five state banks in 1791, and you have a debate about whether a national bank is quote unquote necessary for um, for sort of facilitating the government's finances. And then 20 years later, you have 100 state banks and you once again say, well, is a national bank necessary? What's really going on there, as you talk about things in 1811, you really have to face this question of, well, wait, does, does the existence of state banks, the, the things that state governments may or may not do, does that affect the constitutionality of a national bank. In other words, the way that I like to generalize from this is to say to my students, do the powers of the national government wax and wane depending on what state governments are doing, or are the powers of the national government a static thing? Um, Now, in 1811, you had a number of members of Congress who said, huh, I, I... I actually think it does matter that you have all these state banks that could, you know, a collection of them could provide these services to the to the federal government. Maybe a national bank is no longer necessary. One of the things that John Marshall does in 1819 in the McCulloch decision, and it's not it's not a uh, one of those passages from the case that that people tend to focus on when they when they teach it. One of the things that John Marshall says is basically the existence or not of state banks has no bearing on the meaning of the necessary and proper clause. Congress doesn't lose any power in a given area just because, let's say, the states might have created institutions that could perform the same services. That's And that's, again, a kind of interesting constitutional position that, as you say, is not usually the focus of the discussion of the McCullough decision. Yeah. And so I actually use it as this opportunity to talk with my students. I, I, I don't think it's an example of living constitutionalism the way that we talk about it um, if we're talking about, let's say, 20th century cases. But insofar as this argument in the bank context was an opportunity to talk about whether the power, well, created the conditions for suggesting that the powers of Congress were not actually fixed, but were varied depending on the, the circumstances. That, to me, it was the sort of argument um, that I had not seen before in the early republic. And, and in fact, I'm, I'm, I have, still have difficulty finding examples of debates in the early republic where people would suggest that the powers of Congress would fluctuate um, depending on things that were going on outside of Congress. Yeah, I mean, that's it's it isn't necessarily something that you consider. I mean, you're right. It's distinct from the sort of living constitution argument that we talk about in 20th century law because you're usually trying to regulate something that wasn't in place at the time. Exactly, yep. And and so that that shifting of the focus of are the powers of Congress ones that are constant, um, and to some degree unmoving, um, in an Aristotelian term. Yep. Uh, and and whether or not the states have a bunch of banks or waterways or something doesn't really make much of a difference. Yeah, and so I, and so to to go back to that point in in Marshall's opinion one more time, I I actually think that that. That particular passage 
is a lot more important than we give it credit for, because I think what Marshall is doing there is basically putting out a fire that could have turned into a much bigger uh, fire, which is to say, if he had let that argument pass, then I think it's possible that you would have seen arguments develop and it, it, that in all sorts of contexts, Congress would not be in a position to act. Their activity would not be, quote unquote, necessary if the states had institutions that could perform the same functions. And I, I think it's pretty clear that Marshall thought that this was a bogus um, what was not just a bogus argument, but also a dangerous argument because it would potentially um, hamstring Congress across the board, not just with respect to a national bank. And does that does it potentially apply across branches or just in the sort of federalism context? I I'd have to think more about this. I mean, the area where. I think it would apply most clearly would be those those 18 enumerated powers of Congress yeah. in in Article 1 Section 8. Yeah, cuz there's there's no um there's no equivalent to the necessary and proper clause when it comes to let's say the executive branch or to the judicial branch. Yeah. Um it's a fa- it's it's really an interesting way to think about the bank argument and and so I've I've really enjoyed reading this book. Um I I as I said it's kind of a page turner, a little bit of a mystery. Um you know it's like what's going to happen next in the bank controversy that I wasn't aware of. Wow, that's so cool. You know I, well. I I I have to say I wish my I wish you know, my family members had thought it was a page turner, um, <laughs> but I'm really glad to, th- to hear that some that that some of my professional peers did. And and so now that you've written this amazing book about the reconstruction of the national bank controversy, which I'm now going to have to reconsider how I teach McCullough when I next teach it. Um, what are you working on now? So I am. uh it's funny. I I sort of committed myself, um, sort of in in my heart, to not doing the same thing twice, and yet I'm I'm not venturing too far away. Um, I, I want to think more broadly about the the development of what a lot of people call the fiscal constitution, um, which is to say those those elements of the constitution which pertain to to the federal government raising and and spending money and I, i'm interested in the entirety of the period between 1789 and the and the present day in this case um a lot of this flows from um or uh, let me say uh, a lot of my interest here flows from anxieties about what's going on on the fiscal side um of american public life today, which is to say things like debt ceiling crises. But even going a little further back, some of the Supreme Court cases that I most enjoy teaching are cases which involve sort of miniature versions of the fiscal dilemmas that we're experiencing right now. So the cases involving, let's say, the line item veto from from the late 90s or what was called Graham-Rudman-Hollings back in 1985, 1986. All of those, to me, suggest that um, that we have been thinking about 
deficits and deficit politics and what the constitutional options are there for at least a generation now. And so I'm interested in in just taking a, a broader view at this and saying, to the extent that we have something like a quote unquote fiscal constitution, how has it changed over time and what have been the forces driving that change over time? Well, if somebody can do this any this topic any justice, I think you can, um, because I your your bank reconstruction is certainly one that lends itself to um, lay people and 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 political scientists and economists to sort of take another look at that the, the question of the bank. Um, so I look forward to reading the next book, and I hope you'll come on the New Books in Political Science podcast and talk to me about it. Absolutely. I will use it as a uh, motivation to, to keep writing or, or to actually to, to start writing. Let's be clear. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, and so I was wondering, Eric Lomazoff, where can one get a copy of Reconstructing the National Bank Controversy, Politics and Law in the Early American Republic? Sure. So um, thank you for advertising it. You can most definitely find it um, on the website for the University of Chicago Press. So that is, I'm looking right at it on the on the back cover of my book, www.press.uchicago.edu. You can, of course, also find it um, on Amazon.com and other online uh, booksellers. Uh, the one thing that I will add is, Unfortunately, you are unlikely to find it if you go to your local Barnes and Noble or uh, uh, independent bookseller. Because uh, Lily, for for all of the kind things you have said about its readability, I'm not sure that that those bookstores see it in um, in quite the same way. But I, I think we can agree that they're wrong. I understand. I appreciate that, too. Um, So thank you, Eric, for joining me today to talk about reconstructing the national bank controversy, politics and law in the early American Republic. This is published in 2018 by the University of Chicago Press. And it's great to talk to you about it. Thank you very much for having me on. It was a real pleasure. My pleasure.